This sermon was preached by Harry Fujiwara, Associate Pastor of North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.ns-bc.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. People come to church for many different reasons. People come to church from many different circumstances. Some people just had the best week of their lives. Some people just had the worst week of their lives. Some people are absolutely on fire for the Lord, and some are going through an extended dry spell where they just have no joy. We all come to church from many different circumstances. The text we're going to study this morning is the first 14 verses of the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. And I'm, I'm really excited about this text. This has quickly become one of my favorite portions of scripture in the entire Bible. The letter of Ephesians has been called the divinest composition of man. And I, and I might dare say that these first 14 verses are among the most divine. But first, let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we just pray that we would have a larger view of you. Lord, we pray that through your word, Lord, that we would magnify and extol and praise and glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we dive into this text, again, it's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Let me give you a little bit of background. Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul while he was imprisoned in Rome around 61 to 63 A.D., Now, who was Ephesians written to? You say, well, obviously the Ephesians. Yes, it was written to the Ephesians primarily, but it was probably also intended to have been read to a bunch of other churches in neighboring areas in the Roman province of Asia, of which Ephesus was the capital city. The words in Ephesus that you see in your Bibles in verse 1, they're actually omitted from the earliest manuscripts we have. And so one possibility is that when the letter was read orally, the blank after to the saints who are in verse 1 will be filled in with whatever church the letter was being read to in the neighborhood of Ephesus. So you can imagine first it was read at Ephesus and then it was passed around to other local churches in the vicinity of Ephesus. Now what is Ephesians about? John MacArthur has said that if the book of Acts is the history of the church, the book of Ephesians is the theology of of the church. We see it over and over and over again in the book of Ephesians. Paul refers to the body of Christ, right? The church universal, the people of God. He really wants to paint the picture of this is what the body of Christ should look like. This is what the body of Christ should act like. Let's take a look at a couple of examples. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 say, And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That is, the church universal is his body, is Christ's body. Chapter 3, verse 6 and following. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That is, the members of the same body, the church, are the partakers of the promise through Jesus Christ of the gospel. Finally, chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love... We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You get the point. This is an epistle about the theology of the church, the body of Christ. Ephesians, though, is not just a letter written about the theology of the church in isolation. Right? It's, a little, it's a letter written about the theology of the church in the context of its existence within the world. And that's why Paul talks about every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes in chapter 4 in terms of false teachings. That's why he talks about taking up the whole armor of God in chapter 6 in terms of spiritual warfare. Ephesus is a real place with real darkness going on in the city, real false teachings going on, real spiritual warfare going on, and it's in that context that Paul's writing this letter. Now see if any of this sounds familiar. Ephesus was the political, commercial, and financial center of the proconsular Asia. It had a large population back then, about a third of a million people. Melting pot of ethnic groups. You had Greeks and Romans, Jews and Gentiles. It's a hub of paganism. 
made very clear by the large statue of Diana at the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Wickedness abounded in the city. Right? Political, commercial, and financial center, large population, melting pot of ethnic groups, hub of ungodly paganism, wickedness abounding. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The Ephesians, in many ways, dealt with the same things that we, as a 21st century church in New York, are dealing with. A very similar context. So what Paul is writing here, then, is extremely relevant to us here at North Shore Baptist Church today in our understanding of the church and our understanding of God. So all that as background, let's take a look at this first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So Paul gives a quick greeting. And then right off the bat, he starts with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Right? He blesses, he praises God, similar to what David does in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Then he spends the next 11 verses in what basically amounts to a glorious praise song to God. Now Paul starts the praise by saying that God has in Christ blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we might ask ourselves at that point, well, what does this mean, spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Well, Paul actually answers that question for us in the next few verses. One thing to notice here that you're not going to see in your English Bibles is that verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1 in the original language, which is Greek, is just one long sentence. It's one long sentence. Now, some commentators like to split it up in terms of verse 3 to 6, they deal with the Father. Verse 7 through 10, deal with the work of the Son. Verse 11 through 14, deal with the work of the Spirit. And, and I don't think it's a bad way to organize these verses at all. But in order to answer the question of what are these spiritual blessings, I think we need to not divide the text up, but consider it as a whole unit, as being one continuous thought. And so the answer to the question of what are the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, mentioned in verse 3, well, it's the next 11 verses, verses 4 through 14. And so Paul lists seven spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in these verses that follow. Number one is election. Verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That is, before time began, he elected or chose to save us and call us out of darkness into marvelous light. So the first thing is election. The second thing is adoption. Verse 5 says that in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus died for us, we are God's children. John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Pastor Ed just preached through 1 John. 1 John 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. Election, adoption, the third thing is redemption. Verse 7 reads... In him we have redemption through his blood. This word in Greek has the connotation of paying a ransom in order to release a person from slavery. As a slave back in Israel would have been redeemed by a payment of 30 pieces of silver 
Or even as the narrative of Hosea and Gomer, Hosea redeems Gomer with 15 pieces of silver and some barley. So we have been redeemed from our slavery to sin by the payment of Jesus' death. That is his blood. In him we have redemption through his blood. Fourth, we have forgiveness of sins. Also in verse 7 it says, In him we have the forgiveness of our trespasses. Because of Christ's death on the cross, God no longer counts our sins, our trespasses, against us. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. We are forgiven sinners. Fifth, we have spiritual understanding. Verse 9 says that God makes known to us the mystery of his will. And you say, well, what does that mean, mystery? Paul, later on in the letter, in chapter 6, talks about proclaiming the mystery of the gospel. Colossians 2.2, 2, and by the way, Colossians is a letter that is very similar to Ephesians in terms of its content. So it can act as a good commentary on Ephesians. Colossians 2.2 2 says that to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So God's mystery is the gospel. God's mystery is Christ. And so mystery here, it's not referring to something that's, that's virtually unsolvable except by superhuman intelligence, kind of like a, like a Sherlock Holmes mystery, the context and where we're used to hearing that word. But more often it's in the Bible, it's referred to something that's previously hidden, but later revealed. Previously hidden, now revealed. So now we know, looking back, that God's will towards elect, his elect is revealed through the gospel, right, through Jesus Christ. God revealed his wonderful plan of salvation through Christ, but that's a plan that for a long time in history remained a mystery. It remained covered, hidden. It's a plan of which, it says in 1 Peter 1.10, the prophets searched and inquired carefully, and into which angels longed to look. But that mystery is something that is revealed to us through Christ in the gospel. Number six, we have an inheritance Verse 11 says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. It's not just that we have forgiveness of sins in the gospel, so we don't have to pay the punishment for our sins, and that's it. Through the gospel, we are saved unto an inheritance. That is, one day in glory, we will be co-heirs with Christ of eternity. Galatians 3.29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, According to promise, we are heirs, we are inheritors. And finally, number seven, we have the Holy Spirit. Verse 13 says, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This was referring to Gentile believers who now had confirmation of their citizenship in the kingdom of God through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, as Jesus promised in the upper room discourse, is given to believers to comfort us, to guide us, to direct us towards praising and glorifying Jesus Christ. It says in verse 14 that he is the guarantee of our inheritance. Guarantee there, that's a legal term. It's like a down payment of our inheritance. Being sealed with the promised Holy Spirit assures us of the fact that we are to receive an inheritance. So election, adoption, redemption, forgiveness of sins, spiritual understanding, inheritance, and the Holy Spirit. Given these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, I want to point out five things that Paul says about these spiritual blessings. First of all, these spiritual blessings are in the heavenly places. Now, given that list, right, election, adoption, redemption, forgiveness of sins, spiritual understanding, inheritance, the Holy Spirit, given that list, what we can immediately rule out is that in the heavenly places means things that we're only going to get or experience once we're in heaven. Why? Well, because things like forgiveness of sins, things like being sealed with the Holy Spirit, they're clearly things that happen to us right here and right now. They have nothing to do with the timing or location of heaven. Right Right here and right now, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven of your sins. Right, right here and right now, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. So heavenly places, or, or literally in the Greek, the heavenlies, probably just means things of heavenly origin, as opposed to heavenly destination, that is, supernatural things as opposed to the actual location of heaven. The second thing that all these spiritual blessings, about all these spiritual blessings, is that they are initiated by God. All these spiritual blessings are initiated 
by God. God chose us in him. God predestined us for adoption. God redeemed us through the blood of his son. God forgave our trespasses. God made known to us the mystery of his will. God gave us the inheritance. God sealed us with the spirit. God is the one who is at work here. Jonah 2.9 says, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is 100% of the Lord. Salvation is from beginning to end the work of God, which we see very clearly in these verses. God is the subject behind all of those verbs. We are not redeeming ourselves. Right? We are not declaring ourselves forgiven. We are not choosing ourselves. God initiates every blessing in the heavenly places. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. God chooses us for these spiritual blessings. Verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And God chose us not because these verses are very clear, we would have chosen him. It is clear from these verses that it is not man who decides by man's will, that is, us deciding one day that we want to be saved, that we desire God. But it's God who decides by God's will who will be saved and who will not. Look at verse 5. He predestined us. That's a Greek word that means to mark off in advance. He marked us off in advance for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to what? According to the purpose of his will. Not according to the purpose of our will, but according to the purpose of his will. That's what determines who gets adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. That is, who gets saved. Now, you might say, well, you know, that's really not that much fun. That makes me out to be a robot. I have no free will then. Well, that's not true at all. We have free will, but of course, our will is always governed by our nature. And the Bible says that unregenerate man, unsaved man, in his unsaved nature, wants nothing to do with God. Ephesians 2.1, we're dead in our trespasses and our sins. Romans 3.11, no one seeks after God. Sure, unsaved man may have the outward appearances. He might go to church. He might read your Bible. He might tithe, whatever it may be. But when it comes time to submitting his life to God, living a life of worship, he cannot do that because of his dead nature. It will not allow him to. But when God saves us, he makes us, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, alive together with Christ. Right? We are made alive together in Christ. We are given spiritual life. He makes the dead alive. Right? The dead don't ask to be made alive. Lazarus is not calling out from the grave saying, Jesus, make me alive. The dead do not ask to be made alive. The spiritually dead do not ask to be made spiritually alive. So far from being a robot, you can do whatever you want. But Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Third thing to notice here, all these spiritual blessings are past tense verbs. He has done it. He has secured it. All right, let's take a look at these words. He chose us, past tense. He predestined us, past tense. In him we have, not will have, in him we have, past tense, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 8, the riches of his grace which he lavished, past tense, upon us. Verse 13, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I think the most interesting of these is verse 11. We have obtained, past tense, an inheritance. You see, just three verses later, in verse 14, Paul says that the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, which implies that we have not yet acquired possession of our inheritance. So why is even obtained in the past tense? The reason is because God's work in salvation is so sure, it's so secure, it's so sure that these things are going to happen, like us receiving our inheritance, it's as if they have happened, they had happened in the past tense, therefore obtained. Right? Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. And our salvation is not something that we work towards. Our inheritance is not something that we work towards that one day we might achieve it. Something that kind of hands in the ba- hangs in the balance. It's something that Jesus Christ has already done, already secured for us. Jesus meant what he said when he said it is finished. Right? These are all past tense verbs. Fourth thing to realize, 
is that all these, all these spiritual blessings are in Christ. Eleven times in Christ or in him or the equivalent occurs in just this one Greek sentence. Again, verses 3 to 14, that's one Greek sentence. Eleven times we see in Christ or the equivalent. And if you read Paul's epistles, you'll see this is nothing new. This is a reoccurring theme. Paul uses that term or its variant 164 times in his epistles. These spiritual blessings in the heavenly places only apply to those of us who are in Christ. And so I want to take a moment here and pause and speak to you who are in this room today who are not in Christ. Now the fact that you are alive right now, the fact that you are breathing air right now, shows that not all of God's blessings are restricted to those in Christ. Right? He makes the sun rise on the good and the evil. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That we know. Right? God's common grace is bestowed upon all men as he sees fit. He gives both believers and non-believers food and shelter and clothing, recreation, education, family and friends, physical life. But whereas blessings for Christians, these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, while these blessings for Christians will never end, the temporal common blessings for all people will one day come to an end. And one day you will die, and with your life will go all the earthly blessings that God has bestowed upon you. When you die, you will no longer have your health. You will no longer have your wealth. You will no longer have your family. You will no longer have your children. You will no longer have your house. You will no longer have your education. All of God's temporal, common graces will be gone. And if you're not in Christ, all you will be left with is an eternity in hell. God's patience towards you will run out one day and you will have to pay for the sins which you have committed. And I don't say this just to condemn you. I say this to point you to the cross where these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places can be made yours. If you believe that Christ died for you, died for your sins, then these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, salvation, becoming a child of God, being sealed with the Holy Spirit, these can be yours. Don't just be satisfied with the temporal earthly blessings that God has given you. Be thankful that he's given them to you, but don't be satisfied with just those. Because those things will pass away. All those things have no eternal value. All those things will perish You cannot take any of those things with you into eternity. But the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, these things that are in Christ, these will be with us now and forever. Ours to claim through the death of Jesus on our behalf in Christ. That's the glorious gospel of Jesus in Christ. All of these spiritual blessings are in Christ. The fifth thing to notice is that the blessings... Well, we know that, first of all, the blessings are of heavenly origin. We know that the blessings are initiated of God. We know that the blessings are past tense. We know that they are only in Christ. Fifth and finally, Paul says that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. My wife and I, we like to shop sales, right? Why would you pay full price for something when you can shop a sale? So sometimes we'll walk by and we'll see a big sign and it says, everything 50% off. We'll say, whoa, everything's 50% off. Let's go in, let's take a look. And so, you know, you start looking at the racks and you see, well, this is a nice jacket right here. Is this 50% off? Oh, no, 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 50% off. Everything 50% off, but jackets are not 50% off. And my wife says, oh, I like those shoes. What about the shoes? And the retailer says, oh, no, everything's 50% off, but but not the shoes either. Not the jacket, not the shoes. And you say, well, what exactly is 50% off? And they take you to the rack in the back and you got this assortment of, of pink sweaters that are extra, extra large only. And that's 50% off. So they say everything's 50% off, but they don't mean everything's 50% off. They just mean that stuff is 50% off. But when Paul says every spiritual blessing, he means every spiritual blessing. As in what more can we ask for? Right, we've been elected, we've been adopted, we've been redeemed, we've been forgiven, we've been given insight, we've obtained an inheritance, and we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. I mean, believer, what more can you ask for? By His grace alone, we sinful, wretched creatures have been redeemed, we've been reconciled to a holy God who then makes us His children, and as if that were not enough, He leaves us with His Holy Spirit so that we can be sure, we can have assurance of this, that we can know that this grand inheritance is ours. 
And what do you want on top of that? Right? What more can we ask for? You want a car? You want a house? You want a wife? You want children? Yes, those are great things to have. Those are wonderful blessings to have. And every good and perfect gift is from above. Absolutely. But let's stop and let's reflect for a moment on what we already have in Christ. Election, adoption, redemption, forgiveness of sins, spiritual understanding, inheritance, the Holy Spirit. And because what we have is in Christ, because Jesus said, I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. We know we have internal security in these blessings. Paul had no wife. Paul had no children. Paul had no house. Paul had no land. Paul definitely did not have a car. But Paul had every spiritual blessing. And so he can say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that we've gone through what these spiritual blessings are, right? how God bestows them upon us, I want to spend the remainder of the time looking at why God does what he does. Why does God bestow these spiritual blessings upon us? That is, why does God save sinners like us? A word of caution here, his ways are not our ways. He is altogether unlike us. Right? So it's very dangerous for us to say, this is why God does this or that, as if we could read his mind, as, as if we could ascribe to him our intentions. But this is a case in which scripture, God's word, clearly lays out for us why God does something. In this case, why God saves sinners. Here are the three reasons that the text lays out for us. Number one, God saves sinners to present us holy and blameless before him. Number two, God saves sinners because it is the purpose of his will. And number three, God saves sinners to the praise of his glory. First, God saves sinners to present us holy and blameless. Look at verse 4. He chose us in him, that is in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is interesting because being made holy and blameless is not only a result of salvation, it's also given here as a reason for salvation. Here's what I mean. When we are saved, we are made holy and blameless. The two words there, holy, meaning we're set apart, we're different. And blameless, it's a sacrificial term, meaning without spot, without blemish. They get the same thing. Basically, we are saved to be set apart as God's people, to be viewed in perfection. That, of course, does not mean that we no longer sin once we're saved. Right? If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. But what it does mean is that we now have a righteous standing with God. Right? Jesus lived the perfect life, never once sinning, and it's that perfect life that on the cross was imputed to us. So when we die, when God looks at our record, he sees perfection. He sees blamelessness. He sees holiness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have become holy and blameless, not in our actions, but in our standing before a holy God who sees perfect righteousness when he looks at us because of what Jesus did. But again, it's not just that being holy and blameless is a result of salvation. It is also a reason for salvation. God chose us for salvation, verse 4, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is probably made clearer in Ephesians chapter 5. Turn over a couple of chapters to Ephesians chapter 5. Now, I would imagine that Ephesians 5 is one of the most often read passages in the Bible, simply due to the fact that it's basically read at every wedding. And the reason is because, well, Paul makes this beautiful analogy saying that the relationship between husband and wife in marriage is like the relationship between Christ and the church. And so he says, wives, submit to your own husbands, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And so as the church submits to Christ, wives, submit to your husbands. And husbands, this is a tall task, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And often we use this verse, this passage, to talk about marriage. And we should. But in verse 32, what does Paul say? Paul says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
So primarily, the substance is Christ and the church. Marriage is just a picture of this that points to it. But why does Ephesians 5 say that Christ gave himself up for the church? Why did Christ die to save the church? Verses 26 through 28. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that, in order that, he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I picture that. It's like a wedding ceremony. Jesus is presenting his bride, the church, to himself. Right? That's us. Right? We're the bride. We are the church. But in spite of all the evil that we've done, all the sin that we've committed, all the ways in which we've blemished ourselves, the bride that he presents to himself is spotless, holy, and without blemish. Right? Not because of anything we've done. All we've done is tarnish our wedding dresses. We've been rolling around in the mud of our sin. We have done nothing but tarnish our dresses. But he died to take away sin, to make us righteous. He died to make us without spot or wrinkle or any such thing so that he can present us, the church, to himself to be holy and blameless. So the first reason God saves sinners is to present us holy and blameless before him. Second reason God saves us is to fulfill the purpose of his will. To fulfill the purpose of his will. This is an amazing thing to ponder on. That God not only saved us, perhaps haphazardly, but that he had planned it all along. Salvation was never a plan B. Salvation was never a contingency plan. Salvation was never something that was meant to fix something that accidentally broke or went wrong. It was God's plan, God's will from eternity past, that redemptive history should unfold the way in which it did, according to the purpose of his will. And so Paul says in verse 5, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Verse 9, Paul says, Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Also in verse 11, Paul says, Having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Why does Paul say it three times? Well, Paul says it three times because he wants us, he wants his readers to be very sure that God has been working towards this one thing, the purpose of his will and the salvation of his people throughout all of human history. For it was in the Garden of Eden, moments after the fall of mankind, that God himself gave the first gospel message, not to man, but to the serpent, as if to say to Satan, You may think you have thrown a wrench into my plans, into the purpose of my will, by causing my created human race to sin. But this is all being done in order to fulfill the purpose of my will. Because, of course, the purpose of God's will did not begin at Eden. It did not begin at the fall of man, but before the foundation of the world. And so he tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. That is, this happened. The fall happened. The sin of man happened. Disobedience happened. That I might send Jesus. That you might bruise his heel. That is, you might send him to the cross. But that he might crush your head. That is, he might defeat you. That he might put you to shame by triumphing over you. That was the purpose of God's will from eternity past. And it was in the deliverance of his people, the Israelites, from powerful Egypt... You remember God said to his people, sacrifice a lamb without blemish, take the blood of the lamb and cover the doorposts that death might pass over you because you are covered by the blood. Again, it's a foreshadowing. It's a pointing forward to what is to come, a pointing forward to the purpose of his will fulfilled in the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, that death might pass over us because we are covered by the blood of the lamb. That the Israelites in their deliverance would point forward to the true deliverance That was to come by Jesus again. This was the fulfilling of the purpose of God's will. Decreed from eternity past. It was 700 years before Jesus ever told his disciples. That he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And be killed. That God revealed his plan of salvation through Isaiah. Who wrote so beautifully about the suffering servant in chapter 53. That Jesus was to suffer was no accident. It was a part of the purpose of God's will all along. 
And it was 800 years before Jesus rose again to show his victory over death and God's plan of salvation that Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, pointing to, foreshadowing the death and resurrection of Jesus. Again, that Jesus would die and rise again was no accident. That was no plan B. It was a part of the purpose of God's will all along. And perhaps it was at Calvary, at the cross itself, that the purpose of God's will seemed most defeated. Right? That sin's triumph seemed most sure. The devil thought he might be the closest to victory. I have killed the Messiah. But even then, God was 100% affecting the purpose of his will. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do what? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So even in the darkest time of history, when the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, was being beaten and killed, the purpose of God's will still stood. Herod, Pilate, the Jews, the high priest, all of them were doing whatever God's hand, God's plan had predestined to take place. And it's not just his plan, it's his hand. He is actively working in making this happen. The entire Bible is one story from beginning to end, the revealing of the purpose of God's will. The purpose of God's will was to save his elect from the very beginning, to allow mankind to fall so that he might be glorified in saving lost souls. The second reason from this text that we see why does God save sinners is because it was according to the purpose of his will. Finally, why does God save us? Well, we saw that he saves us because... We should be holy and blameless before him and according to the purpose of his will. Finally, God saves us for the praise of his glory. Verses 5 and 6. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. A few verses later, verses 11 and 12. Paul says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, that is the Jews, might be to the praise of his glory. Then he ends this section, verses 13 and 14, saying, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So from beginning to end, this entire section is about the praise of his glory. Now this section in Ephesians chapter 1, it is an extremely, extremely rich section in terms of doctrine. We see deep, deep doctrines being discussed. Doctrine of election, doctrine of adoption, doctrine of the Holy Spirit. A lot of great theology is being discussed here. But there's one thing that's certain, is that Paul doesn't want all of this to just end with a better understanding of theological things. He wants it to end in praise, worship, and adoration, right, to the praise of his glory. That is, our doctrine has to lead to doxology, has to lead to praise, or it is absolutely worthless. Our doctrine has to lead to doxology, a better understanding of the theology of salvation, a better understanding of these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, that has to lead to us giving God the glory that he deserves, to the praise of his glory, because that is what salvation, that is what spiritual blessings were intended for in the first place. Now this might sound a little bit odd, but God saves us because that's what brings him glory. Right? Glory is what he loves. He loves his glory. He is concerned about his glory. But this isn't pride or vanity, as if it were one of us seeking our own glory, because he is the uniquely ultimate being. He is the uncreated creator. He is worthy of praise. He is worthy of honor. He is worthy of glory. And so he gets glory because he deserves glory. And that's nothing new to the, Old Te- uh, to the New Testament. Excuse me. God tells Israel over and over in the Old Testament... That the reason he does what he does, the driving force behind his acting in Israel's history, is the glory of his name. Isaiah 43, 21, he describes Israel 
as the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Why does he form Israel? Well, he forms Israel for himself that they might declare his praise. How about Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11? For my name's sake, I defer my anger against the nation of Israel. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is concerned with his glory and he is not giving it to anybody else. Elsewhere, Ezekiel 36, God tells Israel, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. We see it over and over again. The reason God acts is for his own glory. Now, one of the clearest passages on the humiliation of Christ in the New Testament, on him humbling himself, becoming a man, going to the cross, dying for us, of course, is Philippians chapter 2. Speaking about Jesus, it says, "Who, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Continuing, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But why? Why does God do all this? Why does God send Jesus Christ to be found in human form, to be humbled and to be hung on a cross? Basically, why the gospel? The answer is in the next three verses, verses 9 through 11, which you've already read this morning. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Basically, it's for his glory. It's that the Son may be exalted and have preeminence. It's that he may have the name above every name, that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, God's glory is all over that passage. Salvation is all about the glory of God. Yes, salvation is about love and and mercy, kindness and forgiveness shown towards us. But in all of those things that we receive, God is glorified. We are not the objects of glory. We are not the ones to be glorified from our salvation. Basketball fans will know Carmelo Anthony. Plays for the Knicks now. When he was a senior at Syracuse University, he won an award for Best Male College Athlete. And in his acceptance speech, after thanking the usual, you know, parents, coaches, teammates, he caused a bit of a stir when he said he wanted to thank himself. This is the quote. I also want to thank myself. I put in a lot of hard work, day in and day out. Now it's a little bit awkward, a little bit of a faux pas, a little unorthodox, but the idea in itself is not that far-fetched. He worked hard. He did things correctly. He made the baskets. He scored the points. He led his team to victory. And so, yes, some of the glory should go to him. Yeah, mom and dad contributed in various ways. But at the end of the day, he thinks he deserves the glory for that award because, well, he's the one who did the work. Makes sense. And this, I think, is another reason that we have to understand that salvation is all about God from beginning to end. Because if we could save ourselves by some decision some commitment, some works that came from ourselves, then salvation is to the praise of us. Right? We, by making a decision that other people did not, we are better than them. We've somehow earned our way to heaven. We've somehow excelled past all those unbelievers. And so we think, well, praise God for providing the way, but you know, a little bit of the praise has to come to me for choosing. If we believe that salvation is about us or of us, then what we're doing is we're taking glory away from God. We're apportioning it, some of it, for ourselves. Nothing could be further from the intention of God. My glory I will not give to another. Basically, you cannot have God's glory. It is to the praise of His glory that we receive these spiritual blessings. So God God saves us to present us holy and blameless before Him. God saves us because it is the purpose of his will. And God saves us for the praise of his glory. From these things, 
two application points. First application point is to be assured in the spiritual blessings you have received. Be assured in the spiritual blessings you have received. Going back to the points I made about the spiritual blessings, let's specifically focus on the third one. Right? These are all past tense events. The Christian walk is marked by sanctification. Right? It's a pursuit of holiness that begins the day that you're saved and doesn't end until the day you're, you die and are taken into glory. So yes, it is a life marked by growth. But notice that these spiritual blessings are not progressive. Right? They're all instantaneously given to us, bestowed upon us, whether in actuality like redemption or by sure promise like our inheritance. So it's not like you get predestination, then you have to earn adoption. And then once you get to the adoption stage, then you have to earn redemption. And then once you get that, then if you're a really, really good Christian, you're going to get sealed with the Holy Spirit. Not at all. Right? These have all been given to us already. The day that we were saved, all of these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places became ours. And so what's this got to do with us? Well, people come to church from many different circumstances. And who knows how you came here today? Maybe you're all out rejoicing and you're on fire for the Lord. You're on a complete spiritual high. Your, your heart is bursting in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Or maybe, brother and sister, you, you come today feeling like you're thousands of miles away from God. Maybe it's your own sin, feelings of condemnation and guilt that have given you this feeling of separation. Maybe it's the stresses and the anxieties of life and, and feeling absolutely overwhelmed. Perhaps it's the sin of those around you, your spouse or your children or your friends. Perhaps it's just a dry spell where you're reading, you're praying, you're trying to seek the face of the Lord, but the joy, is, it's just not there. Perhaps it's all these things combined. Whatever the emotional state you are in, one thing that does not change, that will never change, is that if you are a believer, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. You have been adopted as a son through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of God's will. These spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are in no way conditional on your performance. No way conditional on your feelings. No way conditional on your emotions. No way conditional on how your week was. Whether you had the worst week of your life or you had the best week of your life. Whether you feel absolutely horrible or you feel absolutely joyful. Whether you, are on, you feel like you're walking through a desert or you are on fire for the Lord. As a Christian, as one who is in Christ... Election, adoption, redemption, forgiveness of sins, spiritual understanding, inheritance, the Holy Spirit, these are yours. That's why Paul can say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The guy is in jail. The guy is suffering. He has had a bad week. He has had a very bad couple of weeks. But the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are his. And that's why we can say... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not because subjectively we're feeling this way or that way, but because objectively we know that these truths, these spiritual blessings have been applied to our lives. And so believer, know that these truths are applied to your life. Once we acknowledge that, it's, it's amazing how quickly the other stuff just disappears and, and we're left with nothing but to praise his glory. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what on this earth you're going through. It doesn't matter how others are treating you. Because the God of the universe, instead of giving you what you deserve, the righteous punishment that you deserve, he saved you and then he blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Past tense. It has happened. It is secured. And so, believer, take assurance in these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Second and final application point is this. It's to praise his glory. Paul says it right up front in the, in the letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we read that in our Bibles. It's just words on the page. But imagine Paul as he is writing this. Praise God for his work in salvation. Praise God that he took me, Saul of Tarsus, a violent persecutor of the church. Someone who used to kill Christians, who hated Jesus, a blasphemer. And he blessed me 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that he chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world, that he adopted me as a son through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You can picture him asking, why me, Lord? Why me? In the same way, wow, he has taken wretched sinners like me and you and he has saved us unto eternal glory. Praise his glorious grace. Given all that, the praise of his glory is the natural outflow of our hearts. We can't have it any other way. Here's how John Piper puts it. We praise what we enjoy because the delight is incomplete until it is expressed in praise. John Calvin, the lofty terms in which Paul extols the grace of God towards the Ephesians are intended to rouse their hearts to gratitude, to set them all on flame, to fill them even to overflowing with this disposition. Praise should pour out of our hearts in response to what God has graciously given us, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Our delight is only complete when we praise the one who saved us. And as if that's not enough reason to praise the glory of his grace, here's one final one, because that's what heaven is all about. Some of the times I felt on earth, most like I'm experiencing a foretaste of heaven or when we sing praise songs. I think there's a couple of reasons to that. One is that we were created to praise, to let everything that has breath praise the Lord. But another is that heaven is a place of praise. If you're going to call yourself a citizen of heaven, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, you've got to know that the purpose of heaven, the activity of heaven, the focus of heaven, call it what you want, is the endless praise of of the one worthy to be praised. Revelation chapter 5. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The chief end of man to glorify God, and to enjoy Him forever. We need to meditate daily on these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, and God willing, that will draw our hearts to be assured in the spiritual blessings and to praise His glory. Pray with me. Lord, Heavenly Father, our hearts are filled with just praise for You for these spiritual blessings. in the heavenly places that you have so richly bestowed upon us, undeserving sinners like us, Lord, who you make your children. And so, Lord, allow us, Lord, to be so secure and assured in your spiritual blessings. And, Lord, allow our joy to be complete through the praise of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.